This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Ruth Reichel has been a game changer in the world of food since the 1970s when she was part of a cook's collective in Berkeley, California. From there, she created an almost legendary career as food editor of the Los Angeles Times, as restaurant critic of the New York Times, and as editor-in-chief of the revered Gourmet Magazine. A beloved author, memoirist, winner of numerous James Beard Awards, everything about Ruth's approach to food has been unique and inspiring. She is a thought leader and food advocate, but ultimately, she is a storyteller who cares as deeply about the people who grow our food as the people who cook it. Coming up, you'll hear how Ruth first honed her skills as a chef when she was only seven years old, about how writing a cookbook at age 21 was her way through the kitchen door, how fearlessness and happiness served as her most important strengths, and how nothing mattered more to her than cooking dinner every night for her husband and son. In this time of the pandemic and everyone's quarantined, Ruth was lovely enough to agree to do the show remotely. It was everything I could ask for. This is Ruth's honest and endearing story, and it might leave you feeling tender at the bone. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Ruth Reichel, you're a bunch of idealistic hippies, and I love it. Berkeley in the 70s, after the Vietnam War ended, we all sort of looked around for what's our next cause. And for a whole group of us, food became the cause. I mean, we started seeing the industrialization of American food, and we thought, you know, we, we have a better way. And, you know, there was this group of us who started restaurants and, you know, went out and farmed and, um, you know, started thinking about like, wait a minute, where does the fish come from? And couldn't we just go down to the dock and buy fish down there? Ruth, it really was the first food revolution, I think in many ways. And I believe there's really a second one now. Things that a lot happened in between and food got very elevated and sort of classy and fine dining and all of that. But I think the zeitgeist of this younger generation feels a lot like what you're talking about. Do you, do you think so? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, what I feel is it's too bad we had that lapse. I mean, imagine if the food movement in this, of the 70s had been as powerful as the one today. I think we would have a much less broken food system. Because we agree. were seeing all of the things that this new generation is talking about all the things that really matter to them, sustainability and, you know, the devastation of the earth and the oceans. And we were, we were talking about that in the seventies. And then somehow we all got derailed. Yes. Because we all started traveling to Europe and very, very uh, enticed by what we were seeing there. I guess there were so many factors, but I am very heartened that we are coming full circle again. Uh, for so many different reasons. 
you know, there was no roadmap for your career and, and it will never happen again. You are unique and one of a kind. Well, it was timing. You know, I was like three seconds ahead of the zeitgeist and <laughs> really fortunate to have been in that place. I mean, you know, I mean, I was this little kid who liked to cook and everybody thought that was really weird. And it never occurred to me that I could have a career in food. Never. I mean, um, because you majored in art history, I believe, and yeah, uh, yeah. much more of an academic and scholar, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, people who went to college didn't become cooks, and, you know, my parents who were intellectuals did not think that food was really anything to talk about or think about, and, um, you know, the, the more I cooked, the more they kept saying, you know, when are you going to do something worthwhile with your life? So where actually did you grow up? And what were up, eating and smelling and tasting in the kitchen when you were a kid? So I, I grew up in Greenwich Village. I grew up on 10th Street, um, which was a great neighborhood for food. I mean, we were near Chinatown and Little Italy, and there was still a very vibrant Jewish Lower East Side. And I wandered all of those neighborhoods. Uh, the original Balducci's, um, I passed every day on my way to school. Um and I also had a mother who was truly a scary cook. Um, she, she did not believe that mold was dangerous. And, you know, she would just, you know, scrape the blue stuff off of everything in the refrigerator and serve it to us. She entertained a lot. And I very quickly decided that I had to be the protector of the guests. And, you know, I would sort of like try and get the people I liked best not to eat the scariest food. And then I think your dad, was your dad feeling the same way? And I think you have a brother. So was it like a uh, family secret, you know? Uh, well, my brother is 14 years older than I am. So we never really shared a house, but um, he has great stories about my mother's food. And my father, who was really the gentlest man, and he, every night, he, and he was German. And every night after dinner, he would reach across the table and take my mother's hand and kiss it and thank her for dinner. Oh, Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he would very loyally say, your mother is a wonderful cook. Even though we all knew it wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> this is a love story. And Ruth maybe really was uh, the beginning of your being a food critic, even at a very young age. You knew uh, how to discern what was I, good and what not. My mother taught me to taste very carefully. And I, you know, I would taste everything before I swallowed it to see, you know, is this going to kill me? And then I very quickly pushed my mother away from the stove and started cooking. So mm -hmm. the cover of Tender at the Bone is a picture of me at seven cooking. And you can see that it's not a cute little party trick. I mean, I'm, You're I'm cooking. You're sleeping a hatch. Yes. I, and so, you know, one of the things about learning to cook early is that it never occurs to you that it's not going to be good. I, when I mentioned that you had written 10 books before, did I, did I misspeak? How many, uh, how many is it? I think that's about right. Um, <laughs> Um, there are um, five memoirs and two cookbooks and a novel. So I guess it's 
Uh, I guess it's eight. Wow. So I'm curious, of all of those, which was the most soul satisfying and which was the most challenging? Uh, that's an interesting, the most soul satisfying was probably tender at the bone, just because, you know, I'd been a newspaper writer, a magazine writer my whole life, and I didn't know if I could write long. And so it was the exercise of, um, can I do this? Mm. And, um, and the reception of that book was really wonderful. I mean, it, it hit a nerve and, you know, part, partly because there was not at that time a genre called the food memoir. And, um, you know, bookstores didn't quite know what to do with it. Mm. Uh, but it felt like the beginning of something. And um, one of the interesting things, the reactions was, um, I sent it to a bunch of editors before it was actually published. And one of them was Judith Jones, who had been uh, MFK Fisher's editor. Yes. And she called me to say, I will not be bidding on your book because I'm at Knopf and I'm, I'm not in, I'm not in favor at the moment. So I could buy your book, but it won't be well published. But she said, I would really love to, because it feels like a bookend, you know, that I started with Mary Frances and, you know, she said, and then I could end with you. Of course, that was far from the end of her career. But exactly. at, that, at that point, she was in her 70s and was, I think, thinking that she was looking at the end of her career. And that felt kind of wonderful to be compared to my idol, Mary Frances Fisher. Well, I think you are often linked together, Ruth. And, uh, you know, Judith was so prescient and, and how right she was. Ruth, when we come back, I want to talk more about your books. But if you could also lay out the roadmap of what you did when, because uh, many young women listening to the show um, will really want to try at least to walk in you, some of your footsteps. Okay. So when we come back, we'll, we'll take a deep dive. Okay. And here's a cooking tip to share. This from my guest, Ruth Reichel. Yeah, well, my cooking tip is never waste a lemon rind. I am in love with lemons. I mean, I always have a bunch of lemons in my refrigerator. And even after I've squeezed them and there's no juice left, those rinds are good for so many things. You put them in soups, you grate some into any vegetable that you're sauteing. Um, if you're baking any kind of a cake, a little lemon rind makes everything taste better. So do not waste those lemon rinds. From Ruth's Kitchen to yours. Give it a try and pass it along. So Ruth, your career is so long and distinguished and you have so many footsteps along the way. Before we even really get started, I know you were part of the collective and that's kind of what kicked it off for you. But in order to do everything that you did do, what were some of your greatest strengths that enabled you to be able to take all these steps? And I know maybe fearlessness was part of it. Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think fearlessness is one of those. Um, um, I think 
another strength is um, I'm a good team player. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I, I get along well with people. Um, I think another strength, and I, this isn't something you can copy, but I am generally a happy person. Uh, it's just, it's a, you know, it's enormous luck to be a happy person. And I think part of it is because my mother was mentally ill and I was so grateful not to be her and am so grateful not to be her. I mean, I, I'm, I'm aware of my fortune in just my sanity that that makes me happy every day. Well, um, so I'm did, not, did, your, did your mom actually have something diagnosable? Or oh, did yeah. You... My, my mother was uh, the poster child for bipolar disease. Mm, that's I mean, hard. I mean, she had, you know, periods when she would go to bed for six months and literally not get up and then periods of crazy mania. Wow. You know, I, I have the same weakness that I think most people suffer from, but, um, you know, enormous self-doubt. Mm. Um, and Even with all of this that you've done, that's very helpful to know. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, every book I think I, I can't write anymore. Um, every assignment I get, I think uh, I'm going to screw this up. Um, and I am the kind of writer, you know, when an editor says to me, this is no good, I, I take criticism. I mean, I, if they say rewrite this, I know as an editor that there are lots of writers who fight back. I have never been one of those people. I mean, the minute someone tells me that there's a flaw in something that I've done, I see it instantly and I'm deeply embarrassed by it. Um, and it's I'm, also a gift, right? I mean, it's really someone helping you be the best you could be. Yes. But, you know, I, I think the weakness there is that sometimes I ought to fight back. Um, ah, okay. I mean, sometimes I should, I mean, I wish I believed in myself more. What were some of the first steps? One thing led to another, led to another. Okay. I mean, I was just incredibly lucky. One, that I wrote this cookbook when I was 21. Then I moved to Berkeley and worked in this restaurant. And while I was working in the restaurant, I started doing little tiny pieces for a magazine, uh, for New West, which was the sister publication of New York. And I did, you know, really tiny service pieces. Uh, Also related or something else? Food? Pretty much food related, but I got in there really because one of my housemates' girlfriends wrote the best bets column, and she she was she couldn't really write, so I wrote her column for her. <laughs> Fantastic! Uh, uh, she had great great ideas, but she didn't write, and so she took me in there and said, "You know, you should let her write." And so I started doing these, you know, the best ice cream parlor in the Bay Area kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, how to buy wholesale food. And one of my editors ate dinner in my restaurants most nights. And one day he just looked at me and said, you know, you're a much better writer than our restaurant critic. And you know food. Have you ever thought about being a restaurant critic? And I have to tell you that my first thought was not, oh, this is my new career. My first thought was that we were dirt poor. I mean, I didn't have a credit card. And we didn't, couldn't afford to go to restaurants. And so my first thought was free food. You know, I'm going to get to go to restaurants. <laughs> That's so 70s, right? 
70s. And then I did something else that was really 70s, which was I thought restaurant reviews were boring. And so when I looked at, you know, what restaurant critics were doing, which was kind of like, you know, this has too much salt, eat this, don't eat that. Um, when they gave me a tryout, I took a real chance. And you I wrote basically a short story. And I wove the food through it. And then I turned it in and then I thought, you are a fool. I mean, you just blew that great opportunity. I mean, um, you just wrote a little film noir script. You did not write a restaurant review. And I tried to get it back. <laughs> and, and I called the editor and I said, please don't read that. And he said, it's too late. I've already read it. And because he was a little bit of a sadist, he let me suffer. And then he said, this is fantastic. Oh. And you have to remember, this is new journalism. This is 1977. And he said, you know, restaurants, American restaurants are growing and changing and the writing about them should change too. Oh, how prescient, how um, amazing. But Ruth, this is who you are. You are always inventing new forms and new ways of seeing the world, new ways of being in the world and especially around food. So you became the restaurant critic for? I became the restaurant critic for New West and New West. they had a San Francisco issue and an LA issue. And then it was bought by Texas Monthly and they turned it into California Magazine and said, we only want one critic for the whole state. So they made me the critic for LA and San Francisco. Um, it was really funny. I used to fly down to LA to do the reviews and I would rent a car from this place called rent a -Rec. And one day <laughs> my editor called me up and said, Ruth, could you please just rent a regular car? You don't have to, you don't have to rent wrecks anymore. <laughs> it's hard to grow out of how we see ourselves, right? Sometimes it's hard to grow up and exactly. move on. And then what happened? And then, um, so I did a couple of pieces there, which were, people weren't doing those kind of pieces. When Michael's Restaurant opened in LA in 79, I think it was 78 or 79. Michael McCarty. Michael McCarty. It was unique because all of the chefs were American. And this is a time when, you know, chefs, we thought of chefs as French or Italian guys, maybe German, but certainly not American. They were all young. They were all under 25. Mm. They were American and they were college educated. And I said to my editors, this is a sea change. I mean, this is, we've never seen a restaurant like this before. And they want to use local produce. They, mm. want to, they want to use California products and California wines. And so I spent, it, Michael, it took him a long time to open. He kept running out of money. So I spent a year writing that piece. Oh or, I was paid $500 for a piece that I spent literally a year <laughs> on. Wow. But, but it was such a turning point, that restaurant and but, your career. Yeah. And, and then I did another piece about the opening of Chinois. So I got to know Wolfgang Puck and Barbara Lazaroff pretty well. Um, and then um, I suddenly get this call from the Los Angeles Times saying that their restaurant critic um, was going to leave and did I want to be their restaurant critic? And <laughs> I was 35 years old and I had never had a real job with 
um, mm. you know, with benefits. I've never had health insurance. Um, I've never had a weekly paycheck. It uh, was time. And, um, and, you know, I lived in Berkeley and I didn't really want to move down to LA, but it was kind of irresistible. They decided that they wanted to expand the restaurant coverage. So they made me restaurant editor and I, I was in charge. They had a San Diego edition, an Orange County edition, a Valley edition. Um, and they wanted me to hire people to write for all of those different editions and to edit those pieces in addition to being the restaurant critic. So we ran reviews like four times a week in L.A. So it was a big job. Big job, Ruth. <laughs> and then... What, one of the real turning points in my life was that the food section of the LA Times was the biggest food section in the country. It was 60 pages every week. It was two full sections because, you know, there was still um, competition among the supermarkets. So Vons would take out 12 pages and then Safeway would take 12 pages and Kroger's would take 12 pages. So it was this huge cash cap for the newspaper. And it had its own test kitchen and its own photo studio. So I wrote this long proposal about what a food section could be. And I did it with Lori Ochoa, who was later married to Jonathan Gold. She was then his girlfriend. But Lori, I had hired Lori as my assistant. And the two of us spent like a year imagining what a great food section might be. And a new editor came in, Shelby Coffey from the Washington Post. And I gave this long proposal about what a food section could be and how important it could be to the life of the city and what a great way it would be to cover the city. And a few weeks later, just serendipitously, the food editor decided to resign. Um, she was an older woman and Shelby said, okay, it's yours. Ruth, it's fascinating because it changed every single newspaper food section. And then, of course, you went to the New York Times and then Gourmet mm -hmm. Magazine. And uh, we'll certainly talk about some of those jobs as well. It's very hard to cover your entire career in a, mm -hmm. in a podcast. But, Ruth, when we come back, we will want to hear about what you're working on now, what's meaningful to you, and uh, even talk about your legacy recipe. If you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold, and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. Ruth, so you're now at the LA Times. You were invited to come to the New York Times to also be the restaurant critic uh, then you went to Gourmet Magazine as the editor-in-chief, and you, with them, published two enormous, important cookbooks. Uh, I know it was very hard when they decided to close Gourmet with very, very little notice. You have written about much of this, but I'm really curious to know, of all of the things that you've done up till now, because I know you're working on some other really wonderful projects, what um, what's the real highlight for you? What, what was like the most important? If you could only ID yourself that I did this, what would it be? 
Well, I think it was being the editor of Gourmet. Um, it, it was such an amazing moment to take it over. I mean, I went there in 1999 and, you know, I went saying, I really think that this is an important moment in American food. Everything is changing. And, um, you know, here's this magazine that is like the Bible for American food lovers. And we should be leading the conversation. And it should be much more aggressive. And it was really exciting because everybody at Condé Nast kept telling me the readers aren't ready for everything that I wanted to do. You know, they're not ready to find out that farmed salmon is really just another confinement animal factory. Um, they, they don't want to hear that the workers in the tomato fields in Immokalee, Florida are slaves. Um, they don't want to know, they don't want to even think about what lobsters feel going into a pot. I mean, my response when she said we should get David Foster Wallace to write for us was, he's not going to write for us. And she said, well, I'm going to try and get him. And then sure enough, she got him. And that was a legendary piece. Was that considered the lobster? That was considered the yes, lobster. Yes. Wow. And the scariest piece I've ever published because he actually, you know, brings up the whole ethics of eating live creatures. Mm. And, you know, he says in the piece, I mean, I doubt that the readers of Gourmet Magazine want to read about these subjects. And when I was reading, when the piece came in and I'm reading the manuscript, I'm thinking, you're right, they don't. But I was wrong. I mean, what I learned, you know, that piece, we got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters about that piece. And only two people canceled their subscriptions. And hundreds of people said, thank you so much for giving us this kind of thoughtful journalism. And it was a lesson to me that you should never, ever underestimate your readership. Yeah. Let's let's cover everything. Let's cover race and gender. I mean, all of these things are, you know, food is a delicious topic. And obviously you have to have a lot of fun with it. And you have to have great recipes. And But cooks want to know what's happening out in the farms. They want to know if, if there are problems. Uh, and who would you want to tell except the cooks? You know, Yes, absolutely. And you said something about gender. And, you know, this is a question and a conversation that I wanted to have with you for at least a decade. I hope you're ready for it. So Gourmet Magazine used to publish the top, I think it was 50 restaurants every year. Well, they did. We didn't do it every year. <laughs> and not every year, but there was a something that you did. And of course, that was always very exciting to see what was considered a top restaurant. And one year, I looked at the list and, and, you know, you and I both care a lot about women and women in the field. And, you know, we were sort of pioneers in some ways and really wanted to be supportive. So I went down the list and I said, oh, I wonder how many women um, owned restaurants these are, or how many restaurants have women chefs. And out of the 50, I think there were 11. And this was many years ago. So I said, aha, this is actually a big number. And I wrote you a note. And I said, Ruth, I said, did you realize that 11 of these restaurants have women chefs? And I said, um, you maybe should write about that. And you said something at the time. You said, I wouldn't do that. That would be sexist. 
And I remember thinking, wow, that wasn't the answer I expected to get. And I've been thinking about it for since then. I know really now what you meant. It might have been supportive to do it then, but you had higher hopes. Today you would do it differently. And am I right? That's really the reason you didn't want to single it out? That is, you're right that that's the reason, because it's something as someone who was an art history major and thought a lot about these issues when I was in school about the lack of women artists and really knew so many women artists who resented being called women artists. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm an artist, not a, not a woman artist, but I have to say now that I was wrong. Um, we tried hard behind the scene to get people of color, women represented in all of those lists. We were conscious of it, but we weren't, I didn't understand that my role as a leader was to make other people conscious of it. And I think I was really wrong. I would definitely do it differently. Well, I don't think it's about wrong, but I knew you actually had a sort of even more noble purpose for saying that. And that's the way I felt at the time. But it's so interesting, Ruth, because you really have been a leader in so many ways and, and you continue to be. What project are you working on right now? Well, I am working on a documentary with Laura Gabbert, who's the director who did City of Gold about the late Jonathan Gold. Um, and I am convinced that this pandemic is going to change the food system forever. And I want to document the changes in real time. Um, what that's heroic. Well, what I don't know, what none of us know is our food system was broken going into this and the pandemic is just pointing out how really broken, you know, restaurants don't work as businesses. If if 75% of them are going to close at the end of this, there's something wrong with that business model, the way food is distributed, the way it's produced. I mean, there are real problems with it and we have this opportunity now to fix it. And, you know, those of us who care about regenerative agriculture and sustainability are hopeful that this will be a turning point. But the opposite is also entirely possible, which is that the system will go back 30 years, 35 years, um, will end up losing all the small farmers and fishermen, that this will be the triumph of industrial agriculture, and that most Americans won't really care. And um, I want, I don't know where we'll end up. I don't think anybody does, but I want to try and document it as it's happening. I don't want to come out of this in four months or five months and say, why wasn't I paying attention to this? And so I spend all my time now talking to farmers and fishermen and wholesale food people and chefs and um, ranchers. And, um, you know, I mean, there is no part of this industry that you can look at and not see just devastating things occurring. You know, I mean, you talk to fishermen, 85% of all the fish in this country is sold to restaurants and their business just went, it it vanished. Um, There are all kinds of farmers who are growing only for restaurants. 
You know, I think about Chef's Garden in Ohio. Exactly. And, uh, who, you know, grows these wonderful specialty produce things. And I, I've been talking to Lee a lot. And, and, and I, said, I said to Lee uh, the other day, you know, where, where will you be a year from now? And he said something so moving. He said, I'm a farmer. And if there's one thing that farmers are, it's adaptable. And he said, I can tell you that a year from now, I will be farming. If I have to just have a roadside stand out in front of my farm, that's what I will be doing. But I can promise you that a year from now, I will still be farming. And I found that really encouraging. That's so beautiful, Ruth. And all of these interviews and all this amazing research you're doing will wind up in this documentary and perhaps a book as well. Or what What are you thinking? I'm not, I'm not thinking about a book. I'm just thinking okay. about um, a document, like a what we're hoping for is like a six-part docu-series. Wonderful. Um, and will you be the host we'll of that, feature. Ruth? Will it have feature you on it? Uh, yes. I, I, well, yeah, because it's me. I mean, you know, here we are all in isolation. It's me doing Zoom interviews. Fantastic. I'm so happy for all of us that this is happening. Thank you for that. And I guess fishermen will continue to fish, and maybe there will will be some beautiful upside to this story. Uh, now that we can all see the sky because there's very little pollution. Many good things will come out of this. And, you know, for people like you and me who have spent our entire lives just begging Americans to cook, to have family dinner. I mean, one of the things that's happening in this moment is that Americans who have never paid any attention to food before are suddenly paying attention to it. I mean, they're understanding how great it is to cook with your family, to sit down to dinner with your family. And they're also seeing shortages that they've never seen before. I agree. It's very exciting. And speaking of recipes and home cooking, Ruth, mm -hmm. um, do you have a legacy recipe? I mean, you've created so many thousands of them and uh, have cooked for your family. And, uh, and I really love one of your newer books, My Kitchen Year, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life. What a metaphor. And of course, also love Save Me the Plums, but another topic for another time. But what, what is a legacy recipe? Okay, well, it, this, this recipe is in my kitchen here. And it's my pork and tomatillo stew. And, Yum. you know, I love, it, it's a really good recipe. I mean, it's one of those things that nobody doesn't like this. <laughs> vegetarians. Uh, but, um, it's important for me because it's something that I actually invented for the Swallow, the restaurant I was working. Talk at. about full circle! Uh, My goodness. Okay, what what is the recipe? Well, it's. I mean, I discovered tomatillos for the first time. I'd never seen. I was a New York girl who went out to California, and I'd never seen either cilantro or tomatillos. And so it's it's pork with tomatillos and orange juice and beer and a lot of onions and cilantro and it's a kind of kind of a chili kind of stew it's got some jalapeno in it um, but it has this real depth of flavor because tomatillos are one of these really wonderful uh, kind of sour but fruity flavors mm -hmm. and and you put a lot of orange juice in there and then some dark beer and of course you know, in Berkeley, we were all in love with garlic. So there's <laughs> a, a lot of garlic in it. And the way I use the garlic in this recipe is 
you put whole cloves in when you're cooking the stew and then you kind of smash them later. And that so thickens get, it, doesn't it? The sauce a little bit. It, it thickens it and then also you get a, a different flavor from garlic that's been cooked that way. It, it's very it's very gentle. Mm. Uh, you, you get the flavor with none of the bite. And and um, it's 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 something that I think more people should think of using garlic in that way. Uh, and um, I end up making this all the time, you know, and it's also, it's great for parties because you make it ahead of time, you know, like all stews, it's better on day Beautiful. two. And what might you serve that with? Um, I serve it with uh, white rice, or you can use brown rice, I guess. I happen to like oh. white rice. Um, and a little bit of sour cream that has lime juice stirred into mm. it or that sounds so good. And Ruth, what a perfect dish to make also during this time, right? Because it lasts long and you can make a whole bunch of it. And you know what? Thank you for that recipe and that it's not something that would come from a four-star restaurant because you could have also mentioned that. But this is real and it really connects to your past and present and, and future. Ruth, what does One Woman Kitchen mean to you? Well, I mean, what it means to me is, for me, I would rather be in the kitchen than anywhere. Nice. And, um, you know, a kitchen for me is a place where even when I'm alone in the kitchen, all the people that I've learned to cook with are standing there beside me at the stove. So um, I'm never alone in the kitchen. Oh, Ruth, that's so beautiful. And was there someone or something that changed life for you? Oh, there's so many. There are so many people who have changed life for me. Um, But, you know, I I guess the biggest life changer for me was my son. Just having a child is uh, the most extraordinary thing of my life. And Um, you know, there's life before Nick and life after Nick. Thank you for sharing that. So beautiful. And I know one of the reasons you decided not to be a restaurant critic anymore was so you could come home and cook for your family. Is that true? That's yeah, that's really true. I mean, when I, when I got the call from Gourmet, I mean, I really didn't think I was set up. I, I didn't, I didn't feel that I, I was adequate for that job. And the thing that really persuaded me was Nick was almost 10. He was nine. And he started saying, you know, why don't we ever have family dinner? Why don't, why, why do you go out every night? (laughs) And as someone who really believes that family dinner is important. I mean, I, I genuinely believe that I learned to write at my family table. I mean, in my family, when you sat down to dinner, I mean, the food really didn't matter very much, but you were supposed to have a story to tell about something that happened to you during Hmm. the day. And, you know, in thinking of what happened today that I could tell a story about, you learn, like, how do you draw your audience in? What's your lead? How do you build suspense? Um, So, you know, I the dinner table is important to me for lots of reasons. 
And I thought, you know, here I am. Like every night I go out to dinner. This is, I, I need to be home with my son. I want to cook with him. And that really was, and I think if you ask Nick one of the real important turning points of his life, he would say, you know, when you stopped being a restaurant critic. When mommy came home. When, when mommy came home. Yeah. Ruth, thank you so much for sharing that. I know many people will want to get in touch with you. I know you already have tens of thousands of Instagram followers and fans all over the world, but what would be the best way for someone to be in touch? Well, I'm on Twitter and it's, you know, at Ruth Reichel on Twitter um, or on Instagram. It's Ruth.Reichel. Perfect. Thank you so much. So Ruth, many, many thanks for being with me today during this COVID uh, pandemic. Also, uh, this is the first show we're doing remote and I just can't think of a better person to have done this with. Thank you so much for being with me today on One Woman Kitchen. And thanks to all of you for joining me and Ruth in my kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.